You're listening to Your Best Life, powered by Mercy One. Join us as we have a fun conversation with certified experts and physicians about health topics for you and your family. It's Your Best Life, our one purpose. Well, this episode is all about heart and heart health. And when it comes to the most important muscle in your body, we're committed to providing compassionate, life-saving care when you need it. We're focused on every detail of your heart health, from prevention and treatment of heart disease to living your best life after intervention. And with that in mind, we're joined by a heart expert. We have cardiologist Dr. Rahm. He sees patients at Medical Associates Clinic in Dubuque. So as a cardiologist, what is, what is the most important thing you would like to communicate with people when it comes to taking care of themselves and taking care of their heart? You know, if you look at cardiology in the 70s and, and in the 80s to where we are now, we have grown leaps and bounds. It's, you know, it's a cliche. A lot of people, if you look at some other interviews, it's a golden age. So when I started my cardiology fellowship, that was 2002, I think everybody wanted to do cardiology because it, it was, it, we were in the best place possible. If you talk to people who have trained in the 70s, which is some of my professors are 80s, it was, it was a field where there was lots to be accomplished or unknown. But in the 90s, you know, actually first in the 79, when the first balloon angioplasty was done, a lot of people were skeptical. And then by 1990, it just took off. And it was a field that we could do a lot of things with cardiac problems. So what I want the listeners to know is there's not, there's maybe a handful of cardiac issues that cannot be corrected. Almost every one can be corrected. There's a solution to almost all of the cardiac problems. So it behooves patients, people, that if they can recognize their cardiac problems, it can be fixed, and they could have a completely normal life. Um, Cardiology is in a phase where I think short of transplants, where there's a limited number of heart transplants one can do, it is almost a completely fixable uh, medical condition. Uh, the most important thing is people and patients have to recognize that it is indeed a cardiac problem uh, because there's a solution to almost every cardiac problem that exists, almost every problem. So I, I think uh, it is important that the patients or, uh, you know, people talk to their doctors and, uh, you know, if they think they could have cardiac issues, not be afraid to, uh, you know, take care of the problem because there is a solution. And it's never too late to begin those healthy behaviors for your heart. It might be what to eat or your activities or even some things to avoid for a healthier heart. And um, it's never too late, but probably never too early to take those things into account either. Correct. So in the 80s, the emphasis was opening up the arteries. In the 90s, stents. Early 2000, drug-eluting stents. Roughly in the late part of 2008, 9, 
the emphasis was on risk factor modification. One can modify the risk factors and that should take care of most of their problems. Because when somebody comes in with a problem or a narrowed blood vessel, we, some of the, our interventionists, we put a stent when we open the vessel. That's just the beginning. What is going to keep the vessel open and prevent re-narrowing would be risk factor modification. So if you're not diabetic, don't get diabetic, control your blood pressure, control your cholesterol, get it to the guidelines, don't smoke, and you know exercise regularly. So there are two groups of patients, patients who have had stents, patients who have never had stents, the risk factor modification applies to both the groups, uh, no matter what. One could have had three stents, heart attack. You still modify your risk factors because you're not going to be a repeat offender. In patients who have had risk factors, one of which is family history, so if, you, if one has had a premature family history of coronary artery disease, which I would say is age 50 or younger in your family, uh, there's no point in being scared. Well, got the genes, you got the family history, it's a non-modifiable risk factor. So how can you prevent an event? You modify your risk factors, keep your blood pressure under control, get your cholesterol as per guidelines, don't smoke, don't get diabetes, stay active, because that is all you can do. And the way I explain to my patients, if you did all that, and if you still develop disease, the way to look at it is, if you didn't do it, you would have been in the office 20 years ago or 15 years ago. And for patients who have had disease and who have had stents, there is more reasons to modify the risk factors because what, what happens is when these patients come back, uh, Normally, it's the smokers and the diet, people who have diabetes who don't control their diabetes. After a while, you exhaust what you can do kind of semi-invasively. What I mean by that is tense. And then the next step would be open-heart surgery or a bypass. And then if you don't control your risk factors, those grafts can close. And then you're, one is really in trouble. So I, I think... If you look at any cardiology uh, journals, uh, cardiology throwaway journals, uh, Medscape, anything, the emphasis now is risk factor modification. If you go to many training programs, there is a rotation for three months called preventive cardiology because I think in cardiology, everything that could be accomplished is close to being accomplished what we are, where we are not maybe doing a great job is preventive cardiology. So there's a lot of focus on preventive cardiology because I think we as cardiologists want our patients to do well and we would rather see them as an outpatient than see them in the hospital over and over again. Yeah, outside of the family risk factors, there are a lot of things that we can control. So just to recap there, something like eating a heart-healthy diet or exercising for as little as 20 or 30 minutes a day, 
um, and, and, and losing weight, stopping smoking, and even stress, um, reducing stress in your life can be um, more healthy for your heart. Um, but we know that when it comes to heart failure and heart attack, sometimes intervention is necessary. So let's talk about that, Dr. Ram, and the intervention and what you provide there to patients in Dubuque. Okay. So if patients develop, so there are broadly four or three categories of cardiac problems, valvular heart disease, atherosclerotic coronary artery disease, which is blockages, and rhythm problem. The most common rhythm problem we see are patients requiring a pacemaker because their conduction system either gets scarred or don't function as well. It's a straightforward answer to that. Just put a pacemaker and they're set. Valvular heart disease, there are four valves inside the heart. The most commonly replaced valves are on the left side of the heart. So there are, this is the aortic valve and the mitral valve. Very rarely are the right side valves being replaced. The aortic valve is the most commonly replaced valve. And that's the valve which is now uh, probably 85% is uh, intervened percutaneously or without opening the chest um, called the transcatheter aortic valve. And the, for the mitral valve, I would say in two, three years, it'll be available for most of the patients. Right now, it's mostly uh, in registries and in tertiary care where they're trying to attempt or they are doing mitral valve replacements. Unlike aortic valve, um, mitral valve replacements uh, without opening the chest is a little cumbersome, but like anything else in science, I'm sure will make headway, but in the years to come. Uh, the third group of patients are uh, the patients who have blockages or atherosclerotic coronary artery disease. And that's probably majority of the patients that cardiologists in the country uh, see a patient. Uh, the treatment options are uh, you can try first try medications because medications can relieve symptoms and not everybody is a great candidate for invasive procedures. So that's the first step. But the normal procedure is a heart catheterization or an angiogram. Um, if the symptoms are very suspicious, we sometimes go directly to an angiogram. If the symptoms are not so typical, we go to the, we take the non-invasive route, which is doing a stress test to find out if there is a problem. And if it indeed is the case, then we proceed to an angiogram. Angiogram defines the coronary arteries. We'll be able to know um, it is the gold standard, so we'll know if there's an area of narrowing. Uh, once the angiogram is done, there are three possible scenarios. Uh, maybe 40-30% blockage that can be treated medically because unless it's 70%, uh, intervention is not warranted. So once we decide or becomes uh, once we see the angiogram and looks like uh, the patient may have 70% narrowing, the options are should we send the patient to surgery or should we place a stent? That is a very 
you know, that decision is case by case. So if somebody comes in who's 50 years old, needs two stents, or I can send them to two-vessel bypass, I think in this day and age, we put two stents. Uh, now, at the same time, if I have an 80-year-old, um, four stents, uh, otherwise healthy, I would prefer a bypass. So a lot depends on the location, the number of stents, and where they are in their age and what their comorbidities are. As far as the stents, uh, I think we, or the whole country, has moved to only drug-eluting stents. Uh, the drug-eluting stents are excellent. Uh, we're in the third generation of drug-eluting stents, and the re-stenosis rate or re-narrowing rate is less than 1%. So most of these patients, it's one and done. They get a stent and they rarely re-narrow, except smokers and uh, patients who have diabetes. Even there, I think we've had excellent uh, uh, outcomes, but uh, they're at higher or increased risk of uh, re-stenosis or re-narrowing. As far as, you know, I want to highlight a little bit on uh, heart failure. So those are the fourth group of patients that will have low heart function and they develop heart failure. What are the options for heart failure? 90% of them are medication management. We have a program, which is uh, we have us and the nurse practitioners together. We run a heart failure program. Um, we keep them out of the hospital. And at the same time, patients are able to do what they want to do and carry on with their regular activity. And it's mostly medications, tweaking a little bit of diuretic, adding some beta blockers, um, and then there are a group of patients where they are in overt heart failure. We've kind of maximized the medications. And in that scenario, depending on their age group, they can progress along to um, what's called as left ventricular assist device. And then uh, the step after that would be a heart transplant. Um, the left ventricular assist device can be left alone uh, without a heart transplant for years. Uh, so those are the options. Um, I wanted to highlight a little bit about transcatheter aortic valve replacement. So, you know, I came here 15 years ago. Um, it was a fledgling program at the time as far as transcatheter aortic valve replacement in the whole world. Uh, European countries were uh, starting it. And then Maybe nine years ago, some of the tertiary care centers in the country were doing transcatheter aortic valve replacement. And it was refined further. And uh, maybe five years ago, several non-academic centers opened up the transcatheter aortic valve replacement uh, procedure or made them available. And then, uh, then uh, we started uh, roughly two and a half, maybe three years ago, and uh, I can tell you, uh, of all the procedures we do, the transcatheter aortic valve replacement requires a lot of preparation before they can re receive the valve. The procedure by itself, uh, even though uh, is a valve replacement, is a lot less cumbersome anymore because the technology has gotten better. Uh, the, the tubes that we have to put in are smaller tubes so we don't make bigger holes. And uh, the best part is they don't stay in the hospital for a week. Uh, they go home the next day. 99% uh, of the patients go home the next day. And I, I, I 
think I didn't exactly look at what the latest percentage is, but I think in the country maybe 90% are transcatheter aortic valve replacements and maybe 10% is open. Who do we send for open? If somebody is very young, let's say they're in the 40s and they need a valve replacement, uh, current transcatheter aortic valves, we say 10 years uh, because that's how long they've been in. So if I take a 48-year-old and then I put a transcatheter aortic valve replacement, highly likely uh, he would or she would require another valve, uh, you know, in their life. So I, I think uh, what we follow is what American College of Cardiology guidelines recommend. Uh, if they are younger patients, we kind of tell them, you know, we have surgery that seems to have in a longer, we have long, long-term long data, whereas in TAVR, we can tell you up to 10 years, uh, but I, I think it's changing. You know, last year I would quote 10, now I'm quoting 11 years, because even the valves that were put 10, 11 years ago are still open and doing well. So we factor the age in. The second thing we look at is if they have coexisting blockages. So if a patient has a lot of blockages and they need the valve, then it becomes a very uh, collective decision. We get the surgeons involved. We get the family members. It's, 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 we call it the heart team meeting. We sit down. We say, okay, what would be ideal for this patient? So if they have coexisting coronary artery disease or if they're younger patients, we try to recommend open surgery, not just here. I think that's true all over the country. Otherwise, I think not too long ago, I read an article by one of the surgeons anymore. We have to find a reason not to do transcatheter valve replacements because it is so easy and it's a lot easier on the patients, less hospitalization and long-term outcome is as good. And that's probably one of the reasons I've heard so much about transcatheter aortic valve replacement. We call it TAVR, um, but you mentioned that that's kind of becoming the standard these days, which is really great news considering it's such a minimally invasive option for treating um, a heart valve. Correct. It is. It, that is true of uh, any uh, anything in cardiology or in science. Um, you know, I, I happened to work with somebody who was with Grunzig, who did the first angioplasty at Emory. Uh, it was Dr. Raisner in Baylor. When they did it, um, everybody made fun that it'll never work. Uh, here we are. I think 95% of the blocked artery in the country is being replaced or is being corrected by stents and not by surgery. And I, I think that's where... Um, you know, I sometimes jokingly tell my patients, and I, I think it'll happen. Uh, you know, we put stents for blockages. Uh, hopefully, we'll have a drug that we can dissolve these blockages. Um, it may put me out of business, but I, I, I think uh, that's the way science will improve. And I, I, I'm sure it'll happen, and I'm sure it's in the pipeline where you take a particular medication, and it can dissolve the plaque, and one doesn't have to worry about having a stent or bypass. So I, I think it is, that's how science is, and uh, that holds very true for transcatheter aortic valve replacements. I mean, if you look at the sheet size that uh, one used when it started 10 years ago to where we are now, I mean, 
uh, a patient, a, we don't, it's, it, there's not even an incision. It's a small hole and it's done. And um, I think uh, we did three day before. They they all went home yesterday. Uh, so I, I, I think it's almost, I'm not going to say it's as easy as a knee replacement, but it's it's amazing because when you see a patient, because there are still patients that will now have open heart surgery for a valve, and then they are lingering and they're staying in the hospital for seven days and incision and this and that, nothing. They just, it is such a simplified thing. And uh, I, 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 that's how medicine is. Um, so I'm, I'm, it's, hap- it's a good time to be in cardiology because we really can help patients in almost uh, every aspect of cardiac problems. And and just like you mentioned, just to reiterate, both open heart surgery or TAVR both have great outcomes, but the main advantage there is the recovery time for TAVR really a lot quicker. And, and we talked a little bit there about a, the small incision and how you get that access up to the heart. And that's usually like maybe an incision like in the groin or somewhere like that. But that recovery time right there, that's a huge advantage. You know, I can give you several anecdotes so I worked on a patient who left on January 2nd to California. He wanted to go to the mountains there and bike. That's his uh, winter time. He realized he had aortic stenosis on December 14th. We set him up to do it on December 28th. We got it done on the 29th. He's in California. And he's biking. So I, I think, whereas if you have had open surgery, you are out of commission for almost three months. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, medicine is such. I mean, look at knee replacements. They do them robotically, and they go home the same day here in Mercy. So I, I think um, uh, cardiology is at that point. Now, uh, clearly, it is, it is a big change. And... The good thing about uh, transcatheter aortic valve replacement is uh, we do them with our surgeons and they see the difference. They want to do a transcatheter, you know, by through the grind rather than opening up because they, everybody's looking out for the best, what's best for the patients. So I, I, I think all in all, it's a, it's a win-win for everybody. It's amazing to think with the technology these days that you can have something like a heart procedure and then be back on your feet so quickly. Anybody who wants to know more about TAVR, transcatheter aortic valve replacement, there's um, information on our website. Um, I do want to make sure, um, I know we're running short on time. Um, When it comes to heart failure, heart attack, those emergent issues, when does somebody need to say, okay, it's time to go to the emergency room? Well, it's a great question. So first of all, when in doubt, call your doctor. That's important. I do this to a lot of patients ask this question once they have a stent. When, when should I be worried about? Let's kind of say for anybody and everybody you know, who have had stents, who have not had stents, there are four different types of chest pain. If you develop exertional symptoms, you exert and you get symptoms, you have to think it's cardiac until proven otherwise. If you take a deep breath and it hurts, then it's normally the lungs. If 
you know, you lay on your right side, it hurts, and the left side doesn't hurt. It's probably muscular. And the fourth organ that can cause chest pain is the gut. So if you eat something and you get chest pressure, but then you can run and you don't get any pain, it's normally not cardiac. I think 11 o'clock at night, you get chest pain, and the best thing to do is take an aspirin, a full aspirin, and please don't drive to the emergency room because a lot of patients do, and they get away with it because some of these heart attacks can cause rhythm problem. And when it causes a rhythm problem, you are on the ground. And uh, one can only imagine if they're driving or even if somebody's driving you, these rhythm problems are fixable. If you're in an ambulance and they can shock you out of it and the next minute you're fine. So I would say if you get chest pain, take your aspirin, call 911 and go to the nearest hospital. However, if you don't get chest pain, but you feel like, oh, I went on the treadmill yesterday, I got some pain, uh, then you want to call your doctor and say, yeah, I'm developing exertional pain. The exertion is the key. Anytime you exert and you get pain, until proven otherwise, you have to think it's your heart. I think with the heart failure, the most important thing is you have to watch your salt. Uh, you know, salt holds on to fluid, and patients who have known heart failure or who have had bouts of heart failure have to be very careful with salt. That doesn't mean don't eat food without salt. Just I would certainly not have added salt. Use your discretion. You, If you are prone to heart failure, I think salt is your enemy. So you have to be, one has to be very careful with uh, the amount of salt they use. As far as the diet in general, I don't want uh, the listeners to think, okay, I've had a heart problem. I cannot eat what I want. I have this, uh, I tell my patients this, and I'll say that today. I think we do things in life uh, or we take care of ourselves because we there are a few things that we like to do. So if somebody wants to have a particular uh, food that they like, just because one has heart, had heart problem doesn't mean you cannot eat that. I normally tell my patients, get your cholesterol to the, the goal or the guidelines where particular bad cholesterol has to be below a certain number. Then burn your calories. If you eat a heavy breakfast, go easy on your lunch. If you eat a heavy lunch, go easy on your dinner. Calories in equals calories out. And I think one has to eat judiciously and still be able to, you know, take care of their health. And uh, that's what I want to tell my patients about as far as diet, because people think, oh, my God, I can't eat this anymore. No, no, not really. Just get your numbers to guidelines and, uh, you know, be very judicious with how much and what you eat. Yeah, moderation is key, right? That That's about uh, the, the recommendation for it seems about everything these days. But that's great because considering that, you know, uh, sometimes you see those studies where chocolate is good for the heart and, the, and then you see another study a couple of days later that goes the opposite. So it's good that we can just know that moderation is key when it comes to those things that we like to enjoy. Correct. Anybody with stents can eat anything they want just don't do it every day. 
uh, use it, uh, eat one day a week, and that'll be extra special. No, I, I think if you have a heart problem, get it fixed and do whatever you want. Just uh, be judicious. That's the main word there. Well, thank you so much for that expert input, Dr. Ram. Once again, Dr. Ram, coming to us from Medical Associates Clinic in Dubuque, Iowa. We certainly thank you for all the time you've spent with us today. Thanks for joining us today on the podcast. Okay, thank you. Well, if you have heart health questions, you can send an email to us at podcast at mercyhealth.com. You can also find us on our website, which is mercyone.org slash podcast. And there you can find a form where you can fill out your question or just say hello and find all of our other episodes. Until next time, live your best heart healthy life. Oh,